This is real life. This is real death we're talking about. These are our citizens. These are our constituents. The legislature stalls out on delivering relief to hospitals overwhelmed with COVID-19. From Alaska Public Media, this is Statewide News on Alaska News Nightly for Friday, September 10th. Good evening, I'm Lori Townsend. Also tonight, villages on the Yukon survive a summer with no salmon. There were not even enough fish to have a subsistence opening, and nobody can recall that ever happening on the Yukon before. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Save money and reduce monthly payments today to improve your financial future. The refinance education loan by the Alaska Commission on Postsecondary Education does just that. Exclusively available to Alaskans, ACPE is your family's trusted partner in education. Visit acpe.alaska.gov and start saving. This message sponsored by Alaska Commission on Postsecondary Education. Alaska USA has been on a journey with Alaskans since their first member account was opened in 1948. They'll be with you every step of the way through the challenges of today and the hopes of tomorrow. AlaskaUSA.org. This message sponsored by Alaska USA. The Senate failed to pass a bill intended to ease the strain on Alaska hospitals from the COVID-19 surge. Legislative leaders were working this afternoon to find a way to pass the bill. Senators had passed amendments aimed at preventing mandates for people to be vaccinated for COVID-19. The amendments led other senators to oppose the bill. The vote on the bill was two votes short of the number needed to pass. Some senators criticized the Biden administration's new mandate in floor speeches. The Senate passed an amendment to the bill that would allow people to decline a COVID-19 vaccine for themselves or their children for any reason, rather than the medical or religious reasons required to be exempt from vaccines mandated for other diseases. Eagle River Republican Senator Laura Reinbold proposed the amendment. She said people should have a right not to be vaccinated, and she criticized Biden's action. What the executive branch on the uh, federal level did yesterday was an atrocity, and I think it's completely uh, illegal. I think it violates states' rights. He does not have that uh, permission to do that in the, in the supreme law of the land, which is the Constitution. Bethel Democratic Senator Lyman Hoffman opposed the amendment. He later voted against the bill, saying the amendments made a good bill worse. He said the bill should have remained focused on trying to prevent Alaskans from dying from COVID-19. How can we be taking steps to put our families and friends more at risk when we should be doing just the opposite? This is real life. This is real death we're talking about. These are our citizens. These are our constituents. The Senate passed another amendment from Reinbold that would bar any business, state or local government or school district from requiring vaccines to access an area or service that is open to the public. The Senate also passed an amendment to allow people to use a positive COVID-19 test result instead of showing proof that they're vaccinated in Alaska. Governor Mike Dunleavy proposed the bill after Alaska hospital leaders called for him to declare a public health disaster, which gives the state the authority to temporarily free hospitals from following some state and insurance regulations.
Eagle River Republican Senator Laura Reinbold has been excused from attending Senate floor sessions starting this weekend through next January. She has been banned from flying on Alaska Airlines for refusing to wear a face mask and is arguing that she doesn't have an alternative way of getting back and forth to Juneau. Yesterday, she asked her fellow lawmakers to be excused. I move and ask unanimous consent to be excused from the call of the Senate September 11th through January 15th because there's no airline other than Alaska Airlines that flies into Juneau during that period that I'm aware of. The uh, political ban is still in place as long as Biden's illegitimate mask mandate is in place. In general, legislators ask to be excused when they have another commitment that prevents them from attending floor sessions. Reinbold was barred from most of the Capitol briefly during the regular session for not wearing a mask and refusing to get tested for COVID-19. She eventually started to comply with the rules. The special session must end by Tuesday. No other special sessions have been announced before the regular session begins in January. This summer, communities up and down the Yukon River have been unable to fish for salmon. Both the commercial and subsistence harvests were closed because of disastrously low returns. The state of Alaska and seafood processors have sent about 90,000 pounds of donated fish to the region to help residents with food security, but that volume pales in comparison with the typical harvest in one of Alaska's most productive fisheries. The Anchorage Daily News recently ran a three-part series on the collapse of the salmon stocks on the Yukon, and I'm joined by reporter Zachariah Hughes, an Alaska Public Radio Network alum, to talk about it. Hi, Zach. Hi, Lori. How are you? So what is the situation with the salmon stock on the Yukon River? We've heard earlier this summer about managers uh, needing to keep fishing closed on the river. But now that we're moving into fall, just how bad were the salmon returns? Uh, The short answer is really bad. Uh, The chum and chinook runs in particular are are kind of what we're talking about on the Yukon. They get a little bit of sockeye, pink, um, and silvers, but really the staple uh, returns are king salmon and chum. And uh, kings have been in decline for years on the Yukon and in basically every major river system around the state. Uh, But what was really alarming this year was that the chum returns have really crashed. Uh, Last year was a low year for chum returns, but um, both the summer and uh, fall chum uh, stocks this year just are about a tenth of their median level. Um, I think the latest figures put it at a little bit higher than that, but you've got a tenth of the median number of fish running through that river. So no commercial uh, opening that's happened before in the past. And it's a, you know, a devastating blow economically for the region. But what was really novel this year was there were not even enough fish to have a subsistence opening. And nobody can recall that ever happening on the Yukon before. What effect is this having on the local economy, both in terms of people's household economics and for the region? One of the headlines of the pieces that we published was a quote from uh, the operations manager of the fish processing facility uh, there in Imanuk. Uh, and uh, his name is Jack Schultheis. And as he put it, uh, the economy of the lower Yukon is completely gone. Um, and you know, this really is the commercial fishery there, uh, really exists to uh, employ people uh, in the processing plants during the summer season and to buy fish from local fish people. Um, the, the lower Yukon fishery is a really, really unique uh, commercial fishery for the state of Alaska. You know, 
unlike Bristol Bay or uh, a lot of the other big fisheries, it's made up almost entirely of locals. I mean, folks from the six communities of the lower Yukon, a couple more from upriver communities. And, uh, you know, the, the commercial processing plant is a, kind of a large jobs program for the region and pumps millions of dollars uh, into people's pockets and a region where, you know, there's only a couple dozen permanent jobs. And how are people dealing with that? What what steps are they taking in the lower Yukon to supplement their food supplies because clearly they're not going to have enough fish for the winter? People are doing all kinds of things. Um, you know, at a subsistence level, we heard a lot of people tell us that they were going to be targeting more moose. Um, that's a great thing. And uh, there's a lot of people pushing for more liberal moose openings. Uh, this hunting season, you know, we're kind of in the full swing of it right now. Um, and uh, that could be great, but you need, you know, it's a quite different thing to put away a bunch of moose meat compared to a lot of salmon. A lot of people were planning on um, harvesting and targeting more whitefish than they normally would put away and uh, hoping for sheafish this winter. Zach, I, I can't imagine what it's like for the people in these communities. For generations, they've had this river flowing by that was a reliable partner in sustaining their lives and providing food. Uh, what are people saying about the viability of continuing on in their communities and, and their, their tradition and, and culture that's so deeply tied to that resource? That's a question that I also really wanted to know about. And uh, in asking quite a few people, um, in the course of our reporting was really told in different ways and with different degrees of scolding that it was kind of the wrong question. Um, people are uh, sad. People are upset. They're disturbed. They're unsettled. But uh, nobody I spoke with was willing to entertain um, in very imaginative or specific terms what it would mean to lose the fish in the river. In fact, uh, one woman, um, the head of uh, the Association of Village Council Presidents uh, in um, in Bethel, Vivian Corthus, uh, told me, I, I can't imagine it. I won't imagine it. She was unwilling to uh, put herself in the position to um, imagine the Yukon River or any of the other Western Alaska rivers uh, without salmon in them and said, we need to work harder uh, before we can start imagining that world. Well, Zach, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this reporting today. Thanks for your interest, Laurie, and uh, thanks to all the reporters in the network that have uh, been covering this steadily, and uh, thanks for having me on. That was Zachariah Hughes, a former reporter for Alaska Public Media, who now is working for the Anchorage Daily News. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, Juno's Bartlett Hospital opens a clinic to treat COVID-19 patients with monoclonal antibody therapy. It reduces the chance of people having to be hospitalized and experiencing um, severe COVID illness. That's ahead. Stay with us. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. The Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine is now authorized in the U.S. for anyone 12 years or older. Getting your child immunized with this free, safe, and effective vaccine is a great way to get them safely back to sports, get-togethers, and other fun summer activities. Learn more about COVID-19 vaccines and schedule appointments at covidvax.alaska.gov or call the State of Alaska COVID-19 Vaccine Helpline at 1-833-482-9546. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. 
like healthcare facilities across the state and nation. Fairbanks Memorial Hospital, Tanana Valley Health Clinic, and the Denali Center long-term care facility are short-staffed as the COVID-19 case surge continues. We currently, as an organization, have about 200 openings across the system. Nicole Welsh is Chief Human Resources Officer for Foundation Health Partners, the local organization which owns and operates FMH, TVC, and the Denali Center. Welsh says there are twice as many unfilled positions as there were prior to the pandemic. Welsh says while the doctor and nursing staff is thin, the primary shortage is in certified nursing assistants and other jobs. So that's, you know, your your registration, your your environmental service worker, nutrition service worker, security officer. Welsh says the hospital clinic and Denali Center staffing shortage is being compounded by 15 to 20 employee absences every day due to COVID, adding that the community can help ease the impact on Foundation Health Partners facility operations by doing what they can to stay safe and healthy. For many hospitals, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the fragility of healthcare infrastructure. At Petersburg Medical Center, failing systems in the aging community hospital have been a concern for years. The pandemic hit just as PMC received the borough assembly support to pursue a new facility. In June, a top official with the Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium told the assembly that Search would be interested in building and operating a facility in Petersburg. As Katie Anastas reports, residents are debating the future of local health care. Outside the Petersburg Medical Center, signs are posted on the windows about free COVID vaccinations and testing. But inside, the pandemic is highlighting challenges that are more hidden. A lack of storage space and limited electrical capacity. Mike Boggs, the medical center's maintenance and plant manager, opens a door on the first floor. Here's what we've had to do for creativity for office space. This is a panel room, but we had to turn it into an office for our PT just for a place for them to, I guess, hang their coats. Desks for the physical therapists are in one corner of the room. The rest of it is storage for all the new supplies they've had to order during the pandemic. Masks, gowns, emergency oxygen, and ventilator equipment. Boggs puts the storage situation this way. It's like being a fisherman of multiple fisheries without a warehouse. So we don't have a place to put our seine net when it's crab season or vice versa. Plumbing issues are frequent. Some parts of the building have been remodeled in recent years, but others haven't been upgraded since the 1950s or 80s. Petersburg Medical Center published a master plan last year, including cost estimates for designing, building, and furnishing a new facility. It ranges from 92 to $110 million. The medical center's CEO, Phil Hofstetter, has maintained from the beginning that he has no intention of making taxpayers shoulder the cost. It's well past the borough's or medical center's capacity to borrow money anyway. In June, the Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium expressed interest in building and operating a facility in Petersburg. Petersburg's tribal government circulated yard signs this summer supporting that plan. Ron Ware, a transit driver for the Petersburg Indian Association, helped distribute them. To me, it feels like the community is standing on the edge of the pool, search on the shallow end, uh, PMC on the deep end. It feels safe to jump in the shallow end on search side because they're going to cover the cost of a hospital. One of those signs went to Carrie Martinson. 
For her, a big benefit of a search facility would be access to a broader network of specialists working in the region. My children and my husband get care through search. Like the idea of them not having to leave town for certain things would be great. And seeing firsthand the kind of specialists that they move through their facilities and that, I think it could benefit everybody. And she says the signs aren't meant to disparage the local medical center. I hope that the PMC staff knows that because I have a yard sign, it doesn't it doesn't mean that I think they're not doing a good job at what they're doing. It's just to have the conversation. Petersburg's tribal government hasn't officially endorsed a possible search facility. But some medical center workers still feel like the signs are causing division. Hofstetter says they can lower staff morale. When I see our, how hard our staff work, how um, challenging the past couple of years have been, how I know that patients are cared for on a daily basis, how our physicians are completely invested in this community. It bothers me um, that the signs depict wanting to go with another agency. Going with another agency could mean significant changes to how and whether Petersburg residents vote for medical board members. The Medical Center's board has seven elected members, all residents of the borough. Jennifer Briner says local control, both through the elected board and the local workforce, is important to maintain. She's helped supervise 40 nurses and nurses' aides at the Petersburg Medical Center for 25 years. Because you see the people at the grocery store and at school pickup and at church and at the ball games, we want to try harder because we're taking care of our friends and family. That's something that's special about Petersburg, and I would hate to see that threatened. The Petersburg Indian Association says they're working to organize a town hall-style discussion with search representatives. Search's senior director of lands and property management, Megan Bozak, declined to comment on the yard signs or search's interest in Petersburg. Petersburg Medical Center's board has created a community engagement committee that will work to answer questions, address concerns, and hear recommendations about expanding health care services in the community. In Petersburg, I'm Katie Anastas. Juno's Bartlett Regional Hospital opened a clinic to treat COVID-19 patients this week using monoclonal antibody therapy. It's a method used to reduce symptoms in patients with early-stage COVID infections. Antibodies support the immune system as it defends against the virus. It reduces the chance of people having to be hospitalized and experiencing um, severe COVID illness. The clinic is the brainchild of Chief Nurse nursing officer Kim McDowell. She says it reduces admissions to the hospital, and right now, that's important. The last couple weeks, we did see quite a few increase of COVID-19 patients. Um, We were seeing them quite frequently through our emergency department, many being admitted, and unfortunately, um, we did see some deaths from that. Three people died with COVID-19 at Bartlett in August. McDowell says admissions have begun to level off at the hospital, but she's keeping an eye on the rising case counts in the community. Bartlett has offered the treatment since the first wave of the pandemic, but McDowell says the dedicated clinic will reduce pressure on the limited nursing staff. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Everyone knows eating fruits and veggies promotes a long and healthy life. It's important to make every bite count. Alaskans are lucky to have greens and berries from the land, as well as fresh, frozen, and canned. When it comes to living a long and healthy life, remember... 
every bite counts. This message sponsored by USDA SNAP-Ed. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. The State Department of Labor is reporting that the cost to rent a home or apartment has gone up in Alaska during the pandemic. At the same time, vacancy rates, the percentage of available units, have declined. Alaska Public Media's Kavitha George spoke with state economist Rob Krieger about what's driving these trends. This year we conducted this survey almost a year after um, the pandemic really got going in 2020. Um, And over that time, this year in the survey, we saw rental prices come up a bit, about 2%. And we saw a pretty significant drop in vacancy rates. Um, A lot of the vacancy activity had to do with military movements in Fairbanks. Um, Otherwise, vacancy rates were pretty much down across the board, with the exception of um, Juneau and the um, Chugach Copper River area. So in general, we saw vacancy rates drop quite a bit and rents increase just a little bit. Are those two things connected, like as vacancy rates drop, rental prices go up? They tend to be connected. Um, Generally, when you see a rise in rental prices, you generally see a a fall in vacancy rates as the market tightens, prices come up, and that would would work in the other direction. In a a market where prices are coming down, you don't generally see more vacant units available. So it sounds like there are a bunch of different reasons why vacancy rates have mostly dropped, and some of them are pandemic-related and some of them aren't. Could you outline some of the reasons why we're seeing that drop? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing that's happening with vacancy rates, is, as I touched on earlier, is is definitely the military movements in Fairbanks related to the F-35. In general, though, I think the pandemic has probably... You know, normally you'd have a certain amount of churn happening in the rental market. You know, people, you know, when they rent, they 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 often move from one apartment to another, either upsizing or downsizing, or you know, there's just normally a lot more people moving around. Um, I don't think that was happening during the pandemic to the extent it normally would, because you know, people are staying in place. They may have been dislocated from their employment, and it's just a matter of making no major changes at this point due to the fact, you know, for safety reasons, for other things, nobody's really just moving that much. So you don't have the the, the vacancies that would normally come up. Um, the other kind of factor, which it's hard to measure to what extent this is actually the case, but you know, normally evictions would be causing a certain number of vacancies to be happening throughout the year. Um, and that's obviously not happening to the extent that it normally would. And I also think too, that, you know, because the housing market sales prices have gone so high over the year, it's getting to that point where even with interest rates being low, um, I think it's going to be harder and harder for some people to, to kind of break into the housing market. Um, especially when you consider that, you know, in, in, in average, mortgage payment is now significantly higher than the average rent. With low interest rates boosting home prices, I know in Anchorage we have a really competitive housing market, and at the same time not a lot of new development. And I'm wondering if that's keeping people in their rentals and potentially making the rental market more competitive as well? It's 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 possible. Um, I couldn't say that. For, I couldn't say for sure. 
But it does seem like the situation with the housing market is keeping people in their rental units because it's, to some extent, more affordable to be renting right now. I think so. I think that it's hard to say that for sure, but I do believe that because, you know, because housing prices are getting so expensive when you factor in the average cost of a mortgage payment um, and compare that with the cost of a rental with all utilities included, I think it is probably, you know, for, especially for first-time buyers, um, in addition to trying to cover that big down payment, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty significant increase in monthly housing costs. So now that the eviction moratorium has expired, I am sure that influences the market in a lot of ways that we can't fully predict. But what are some things that could happen next? It's really hard to predict the impacts. You hear that people talk about a crisis, and you know, obviously, if, if everybody who was displaced by the pandemic was was evicted at at once, it would be a crisis. But I don't. It's hard to say, you know, how exactly how many people are in that situation, and and what's normal in terms of numbers of evictions that would be happening. That was State Department of Labor economist Rob Krieger. Dillingham's schools had a bumpy start. Just days into the new year, several students tested positive for COVID-19. Still, as KDLG's Izzy Ross heard from kids during a recent recess, they're excited to be back. On a bright, sunny day at the end of August, it's recess for kids in Dillingham Elementary on one of the first days back in school. Sophia Vo just started first grade. How old are you? Six. I'm going to turn seven next week. She says she's excited to learn new things this year. Because I like doing math, so I'm really excited to do math because math is my most favorite in school. That's so wonderful. What do you think you're going to learn this year in math? I don't know. Maybe um, like harder math and stuff. Like, I already did like 90 plus seven. Oh, really? Do you know what that is? 97. Whoa! Last year, the schools shut down multiple times due to the pandemic. Now, in-person learning is back, with some precautions in place. The city's latest emergency order requires students and staff to wear masks, but they can take them off for recess, athletic activities, and gym. With school starting back in person, everyone is getting used to new classes. I'm excited um, to be in fourth grade. Kenya Davis is nine. I'm excited to like see all the teachers, see a new teacher from last year and now this year. I'm happy about um, that I can see all my friends again and I can finally um, learn more. I just miss school. Superintendent Jason Johnson says the school district hopes to make this year as close to normal as possible. Barring a community-wide shutdown, the district plans to keep the school open. It's really been a mindset from last April that school is going to stay open this year. We as a staff and a leadership team and a school board agree that kids need to be in school. And no matter the grade, lots of kids are just happy to be back. Cooper Roanfance is another first grader. How old are you? Six. No, seven. <laughs> Wonderful. He says he likes being in the classroom. Because you can eat with more people and see your old friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can play with your old friends, too. Mm-hmm. I like it about this year. Six-year-old Conlon Maines agrees. I love school, and it's 
Nice. Awesome. What do you like about it? Um, I love my class and and I love my teacher, Miss Ruby. In Dillingham, I'm Izzy Ross. And that's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. If you missed any of tonight's stories, we're online at alaskapublic.org and wherever you get your podcasts. We had reports tonight from Andrew Kitchenman and Claire Strempel in Juneau, Dan Bross in Fairbanks, Katie Anastas in Petersburg, Kavitha George in Anchorage, and Izzy Ross in Dillingham. If you want to send us a news tip, question, or comment, email us, news at alaskapublic.org. Our audio engineer is Eric Bork. Annie Fight is our producer, and I'm Lori Townsend. Have a great weekend. Alaska News Nightly was made possible by Alaska Air Cargo, connecting 21 Alaska communities to and from the lower 48 with scheduled shipping services. More information at alaskacargo.com. Planning today for a gift down the road builds a legacy of support for the media you treasure. Thank you for considering this public radio station in your estate planning. You can talk to your financial advisor or contact your public radio station to learn more. This is statewide news on Alaska Public Media.